Let's pray. Lord, this morning, before we continue in sermon and more song and everything else that's in store, supper, um, Lord, we want to lift up some specific things in prayer. First of all, I want to pray for another church in our community. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to lift up other churches and to cheer for your for you and your greatness through local churches, Lord, and we pray for that in Wesley United Methodist this morning. We pray for Gene Wisdom. Uh, I don't know if Gene has a family or if he's a, a single man, or, uh, but I want to pray for Gene's worship, uh, whether he's by himself or with a family, that he is fueled by worship. Lord, I pray that it's something that will guard the pulpit, that would guard his counseling ministry, that he is walking in worship and not in just job. Lord, I pray that he is walking in calling. I pray that week to week as he studies and prepares to preach or uh, prepares to counsel or shepherd in any way, Lord, that he is guided by a deep adoration, uh, affection, love for um, walk with uh, you. And um, Lord, I pray that he, is ha- that he has time to spend with you in your word. I pray that he is surrounded by uh, people who can Encourage him and hold him accountable at the same time. Lord, I pray that his sermons are potent and effective in equipping the saints for the work of worship. Lord, I pray that he is um, just fueled by adoration and awe. I uh, pray that you would guard him from uh, some of the difficulties of pastoral ministry that... that uh, he would have um, a strength and, a, in, and an endurance. Lord, I pray that the effect of that would be that as he preaches and as he equips the saints um, at Wesley, Lord, that a people are equipped to walk with you and that they're walking with you in a way that is life-altering for them and God-glorifying in how they move or between Sundays. I pray the same thing for this church body and every other Christian church in our community, that Sundays actually have an impact on Wednesdays and Monday mornings and Saturday nights and everything in between, that there's some, some show, uh, some, some tell, um, some fruit, uh, some aroma that others can smell, um, and that'll be the aroma of life, Lord. I pray for that in Wesley United, United Methodist. I pray that for Cross Point. Uh, Lord, I pray, too, that, um, that it will be a growing ministry, that they will not have, that they will have to deal with wonderful issues like where do we put our people and where do we uh, put our children and our newborns and our families that are joining, Lord. We, we beg for that in uh, Wesley United Methodist and just pray that you would do a great work there. Pray that whatever way that we can go beyond this prayer this morning, but to maybe encourage a workmate or a friend that is a member there, that, uh, that we'll, we'll think about that and follow through on that this coming week. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I pray for, um, I pray these next few minutes will be identity shaping. I pray for that in this sermon, Lord, that it will be identity developing, identity shaping, um, that as a result of the time that we spend together, that you will grow our roots just a little bit deeper. Um, Lord, we love you, we trust you, and we entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Genesis. 
We just finished up our spring break as a family. The McGraws managed to uh, get away this week. Uh, we went to Enchanted Rock uh, out in the hill country. We, went, uh, we spent a couple nights camping at Lost Maples. Uh, we did some hiking while we were out there. You have to hike if you're going to go up on Enchanted Rock. You can't get up there by car. You actually have to earn the trip up. Um, we did a lot of talking, a lot of laughing, a lot of joking around. Um, reflecting on the week uh, as a dad and husband, um, I thought, man, this really was a relational week. I mean, if just to summarize it, it was just a relational week, and it was good for my soul. And I think it was good for the souls of uh, the other members of our family. And I thought about why. You know, what is it about being together as a family for an extended period without a lot of our typical distractions and a lot of our typical schedule that's healthy? What is it about it that nourishes the soul? And I think that maybe we might find in between last week's sermon and this week's sermon that we were made for it. That's why it nourishes us. We were made by a relational God and we were made to be relational. I've had periods in the last few years, I would say it's probably the last four or five years in ministry that have been very dark periods for me. I, I can't say that they're clinical depression type periods. I haven't been diagnosed or anything like that, but um, those around me might think it was and didn't have the, the, the opportunity to say so or I wasn't listening, but just really dark periods of depression. Um, and I thought about what is it about that time where isolation and depression sort of go together. I did a little research online. It wasn't real thorough. It was WebMD, which you all have access to. You could probably pull up your, your cell phone right now and find the same thing that I'm referring to. It's some traps that go along with depression. And the first one listed on the traps, I can't remember how many there were, but the first trap is social withdrawal. It says social withdrawal is the most common telltale sign of depression. When we're clinically depressed, there's a very strong urge to pull away from others and to shut down, says, says Stephen Ilardi, Ph.D., author of books including The Depression Cure and Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Kansas. He goes on to say, it turns out to be the exact opposite of what we need, this withdrawal. In depression, social isolation typically serves to worsen the illness and how we feel, Ilardi says. Social withdrawal amplifies the brain's stress response, and social contact helps put the brakes on it. Something else is the second trap that's listed on that site is included and somehow intertwined for me in those periods of uh, rumination, where I ruminate on my failures. I ruminate on things that I feel like aren't going well, and I remind myself over and over while I'm in isolation while I've withdrawn from others. Well, Alardi says the fix is, you know, it's nice to have a real nice, tidy, easy fix. It's never tidy or easy, but this is the fix according to the WebMD. Gradually counteract social withdrawal by reaching out to your friends and family. Make a list of the people in your life you want to reconnect with and start by scheduling an activity. I know it's not quite that easy as just... Um, fixing things like that for those of you that struggle with that from time to time. But I've thought, I've tried to wrestle with which comes first. 
social withdrawal or depression? Which is the chicken and which is the egg? I don't know that we'll ever answer that. I, isolation and withdrawal seem um, associated with depression, but it's hard to know what causes what. One thing is sure, though. One of the best things you can do when you're down is to connect with other people. And I think that's because we were created in a relational God's image. And we were created to be part of each other's lives. We were created by a God that we discovered last week is himself relational. The three things we found together in just this foundational chapter, Genesis chapter 1 last week, is that first of all, God is team. God is a creation team He works together as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in union with each other, in concert with each other in creation. You see all three persons at work in creation week. Secondly, we found that the creation design by nature was not made as a monolith. He did not create as a monolithic creator. Only his work in creation, but that he actually imported and invited creation into the creation week to do some creating as well. You could read Genesis 1 a thousand times and miss the fact that he is an inclusive God. He recruited creation into the work of creation week. He turns to the earth and says, earth, sprout vegetation Earth, I've created you. Now you go do some creating. Sprout some vegetation and plant yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. He does the same thing with mankind. You, man and woman that I've created, now go be fruitful and multiply. Go do some creating on your own. I've created you, but I'm inviting you into the work. And lastly, we found last week that He created creation in covenant. He worked with creation as a covenantal God. You hear the word covenant, you might think that sounds real rigid and legal, but it is very, very relational. He created the earth and its creatures, giving them and us commands, and then on the other side, giving us judgment, which would involve evaluation and sanctions. He created the moon and the sun and these lights to rule the night and the day. And then after he created them, he told them, commanded them, rule the night and the day. And then he looked to see, are they doing it? And when they did, he blesses them. He assesses. He gives judgment. He gives sanctions. And his sanctions, in this case, are blessings by saying, it is good. He called the day good and he called their work good. We can look to creation to understand our God and what he's like. And we can look to something as simple and foundational as creation to understand why in the wide world of sports did he unite us to Christ? What was it in him that compelled him? We considered last week, and we're going to develop further this week, that he is a relational God. That's why. And union with Christ means reconnecting with our creator to walk with him yet again in the cool of the day. 
Today we're going to develop two more things. I don't think it's going to be as brief as last Sunday. That may be a record last Sunday for those of you that are here. But it's not going to be a mega sermon either. I think it's two really simple things, but they are, in my opinion, they have nourished me and they've blessed me as I've enjoyed this about God. The first of the two things that we're going to consider this morning is that union with Christ means recreation in the image of God. Recreation in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This sixth day was the day that he made man. We don't know what time of day it was. It's verse 24 is where the sixth day begins, where he, he commands the earth to bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. We might imagine this is sometime after noon. We don't know how it went down. It could have been moments in time. It could have taken place in seconds. But I just imagine this maybe is this Friday afternoon. Saturday is actually the rest day if you know how the Sabbath works out. So maybe this was Friday afternoon, the pinnacle of creation week. The high point of creation is the day that he creates man. It's the only place in the entire creation account, in the entire creation week, that we see God involved in something called self-deliberation. Where God turns to himself and says, okay, let's do something special and unique here. They've been doing their own thing, working together in concert up to this point. But now they pause. They hit the pause button at noon and turn to one another, the persons of the Trinity, and say, let us make this thing unique. Let's make this thing in our image. There's tremendous insight into not only what was created at that moment, but the importance of what was created, and also into how it was fashioned. After all, none of the other creatures, none of the other created things over the course of the week involve self-deliberation of God, and none of them involve bearing His image, being created in His image. Man, though, is unique. Man was made in God's image. I spent some time this week thinking on what that means. I did a little bit of research and a little bit of just wondering myself. So this is kind of an uh, uh, amalgamation, if I can use that word. Uh, I'm, I don't like big preacher words. It's not a big preacher word. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, a gumbo of my thoughts and um, real thoughts. <laughs> what do humans have that nothing, nothing else has? Well, we can speak with one another. In languages that have real languages. And you might think that critters can communicate with one another. And I think they can, clearly. But we can actually speak. Nothing else that I know of that's created actually speaks in a voice, using a voice box, a language with one another, and can learn different languages. And we also, on top of that, have nonverbal communication. We can have whole conversations where not a word was spoken with one another. We, too, walk upright. I mean, there might be some other critters that can do that for a little while, but for the most part, we're the ones that do it all the time, most of us. <laughs> we walk upright. 
We're also not covered with a fur coat, at least most of us. Some of you real hairy dudes are kind of leaning in that direction, but most of us, for the most part, are not covered with a fur coat. We have opposable thumb or opposable digits. We can, we can snap. We're the only critters that can do that. Nothing else can do that. You don't see animals snapping at one another. We, have the lar- we don't have the largest brains, but we have the most capable brains. The largest brains belong to the sperm whale, and actually some birds have largest brains or have the largest brains relative body weight of any other creature. But yet we're the ones writing symphonies, not birds and not whales. We wear clothing. Nothing else goes looking for things to put on other than mankind. But that's less about creation and more about the fall and more about how God created us to actually experience guilt and shame when we've wronged him. But that's something we share as humankind. We, for the most part, I think most of us want to wear clothing. We've mastered fire. I don't know of any other creature that I've ever seen making fire. I can imagine some that would like to as they get really cold. The little bunny that's jumping through the snow in the winter, I bet he would love to sit by a fire. But we're the only ones that have mastered that. We blush. No other creature created on Creation Week blushes. Darwin called it the most peculiar and most human of all expressions. I bet it was peculiar to him given his take on things. No explanation for it. Here's one. According to George Carlin, the world needed us to do what only we could do, make plastic. (laughs) What other critters can make plastic? And we can make lots of it. We have true emotions. My son's cat, Daniel's cat, that he is like somehow connected in, in a way that I've never seen a human being connected with a cat. My son's cat looks like he's smiling at me all the time. It's the strangest thing. I know there's grumpy cat. This is happy cat. This cat always looks like it's smiling, but he's really not because he also has that smile when he's slapping my dog in the face with his, with his little paws. Or maybe he's happy. I don't know. Maybe he's really enjoying that. <laughs> my dog looks like he loves me when he looks at me, like he's longing for me, like he could eat me. He loves me so much, but really I think it's not love. I think actually I'm just his alpha and his every instinct is to follow me. I don't think that any other critters really experience true emotions. We have complex reasoning skills. We have a soul. We have a deep, quiet inner man that looks back at us in the morning mirror and asks, are we okay today? Other animals don't have that. We have a soul that looks back at us and says, do we have meaning? Am I who I'm supposed to be? That's a human thing. I did some research on what it actually means to be made in the image of God. And I found Wayne Grudem, who has a great systematic theology book. He described this or explained this, pointing out the words used in this passage for image and likeness refer to something that's similar but not identical to the thing that it represents or is the image of. Therefore... This passage would read or mean to the original readers, let us make man to be like us 
and to represent us among all creatures made over the course of that week that is unique to us to be made like God, to represent God. We are spiritual beings with a spirit. We are personal beings with a personality. We are moral beings with a sense of right and wrong. We are relational beings. We are rational beings. We are emotional beings. And we are creative beings. Man was made in the image of God, but then came the fall. Something happened to that image in the fall. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. I have a couple of passages I, I, want, I want to spend a few minutes looking at. One is in Colossians and one's in Ephesians. Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians 4. If you want to have a finger in Ephesians 4 to be ready to flip over there, you can do that. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 because I want to develop a connection here. I want to show you connection to Union with Christ. That is what we're in a series of sermons on union with Christ. That is ultimately what we're talking about today. Is union with Christ in creation and how that works together. So let's look at chapter 3 of Colossians, beginning in verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, okay, you're going to start to hear some some, uh, union language. I hope you're listening for it. If you've been raised with Christ, together with Christ, if you're in union with Him. Okay, listen for more of it in this passage. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died. You've died with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here, union with Christ. For those of the, that are in union with Christ, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will will appear with him in glory because you're in union with him. Okay, see the connection to union with Christ. Now, continue on in verse 5. For those that are in union with Christ, he's writing to the Colossian church. Watch what he says. He's going to say put off some stuff and then he's going to say put on some stuff. But here's what he says in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. I have a little note down on my Bible, a little number there, the number three. Some of you that have the ESV, you may have that same little number, the number three. And you look down at the bottom of the page, it says man. But you have put off the old man. Let's use that word. I think that would be a more helpful word. If you're united to Christ, you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
In this passage, he's encouraging those who've been united to Christ to put off the old man and put on the new. Now, we likely hear that passage like a bunch of Westerners. And I don't mean Western like cowboy hat, key walker, snap shirt wearing Westerners. I'm talking Westerners as where we live in the U.S. We think very individualistically. And we likely are going to read and hear this passage like a bunch of individuals. But what you need to hear in this passage is what he's encouraging them to do, is calling them to do, is to put off the old humanity. To put off the old mankind. And to put on the new humanity, he says here, that is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. If you're in union with Christ, he's saying put off the old humanity... That fallen humanity that really, frankly, is not fully human. And put on the new, renewed humanity that's renewed into the image of God. Put off the old man and put on the new in light of your union with Christ. Because united to Christ, what he's saying here, you have become an altogether new Humanity. You've become a new race of Friday afternoon Adams and Eves. Hear that. If you're united to Christ, you've become, you've, it's like you've been transported morally, uh, righteously, um, in, in God's eyes, to Friday afternoon Adam and Eve. It's a room full of us right here, a bunch of Adam and Eves. On Friday afternoon, pre-fall humanity. So put off that old fallen humanity. Put on that new humanity that is being renewed into the image of Christ. A new race. Now look at Ephesians chapter 4. It gives us a little bit different aspect on it here. Or a little bit different perspective in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church with the same message. I'll I'll start in verse 22. Put off your old self. Look down in your little note at the bottom of the page. Your old man, your old humanity. Don't think like an individual. That's not put off the old Ben and put on the new Ben. It's put off your old identity with your old humanity and put on the new humanity that's being renewed into the image of God. Look at it. Where did I start in verse 22? Put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new man, the new humanity created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there's a little interesting development here in Ephesians. If you look across the page in my Bible, you can start in verse 14 of chapter 2. I'm going to show you a little interesting nuance here. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You know who the both are there in Ephesians. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. The most unlikely of fellow worshipers, a Jew and a Gentile. He has made Jew and Gentile one. Look at what he develops here. He himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, here union with Christ, one new man or humanity in place of the two so making peace. 
What he's encouraging here is the same thing that was encouraged in Colossians. is put off the old humanity, put on the new humanity, and don't move like a bunch of divided Jew and Gentile, Scythian, bond, servant, slave, free, a bunch of people that are all divided and that are essentially decreated through the fall, but move like a bunch of recreated people as one body of believers who are being renewed into the image of God. Man, what he's saying here to both the Ephesian church and the Colossian church is that you are a new race of image bearers. You're a new people who can be, like we described here, like God and can represent God. That's what union with Christ means. Is it by union with Christ that you are remade into the image of God? You are transported back into Genesis chapter 1. Does anybody else want to go back there and be those people on Friday afternoon with me? Well, that's what union with Christ accomplishes. Your Friday afternoon, Adams and Eves. Here's the reality, the development here. Here's the important thing that you need to get. Is Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 seem to say that it's only those in union with Christ who are being renewed into God's image. It's only those who are in union with Christ that are being restored back into being image bearers who can represent God and be like God. Man, that's what happens in union with Christ. Now, here's why it happens. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. You can stay in Colossians. Uh, actually, Colossians chapter 1. You can stay in Colossians for our second point this morning. Here's why union with Christ recreates us into the image of God. If we can all enjoy that it does... Let's, for a moment, consider why it does. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I think I'm going to... Yeah. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. The reason union with Christ recreates us back into the image of God is because by our union with Christ, by faith, is we are being made into something that He already is. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when we are united to Christ by faith, the reason we are being renewed into the image of God is because we have been united back to the true image bearer. We've been united back to the image of God. While here we are in a fallen world experiencing death and decay and depression, and heartache, and difficulty, and everything else that we all experience here in this fallen earth. Anybody else back ever hurt them? While we experience those daily difficulties, union with Christ means that we are being united to the life and the light of men. And the image bearer, the true image, the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of God's nature to God the Son. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That when we are united to Christ by faith, we are united to the life and the light of men, and that we become part of a whole new image-bearing humanity. Union with Christ means renewal. It means restoration. It means renovation into the image of God. Man, I hope you enjoy that. It's in union with Christ that we are remade to be like God. And it's in union with Christ that we are remade to be able to represent God. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want that. Why wouldn't someone want that? Man, every Sunday we have folks that are searching for what does it mean to follow Jesus and sort of doing a, an assessment here and maybe wrestling with following Christ. Should I? What is it? What's involved? What am I going to lose? What am I going to gain? Consider gaining that to be remade, to be fully human as man was made on the, on the Friday afternoon. Man, I want to be able to look in the mirror and know that, man, I'm fully made, fully human. I've been renewed and restored into the image of God. That's some seriously good news. Who wouldn't want that? The only way to achieve that is by faith, trusting in Christ fully and completely. The second thing we're going to consider this morning is that union with Christ means you're a recreated gift. I told you I wanted, to st- I wanted you to stay in Colossians because that's where I pick up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 is the passage I just read about Christ being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And look at this next phrase. And for him. All things were created through him and for him. Not only was the world created by the word going into action. As the Father speaks, God the Son, the word creates. Not only was it created through him, but it was created for him. I want to show you something, just to visualize something. We have a, um, or we had a little blow-up globe in our house that was, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like magnetic. This thing showed up every place I didn't want it to be. Like I'm walking into a room, and there it is under my feet. This, it, it was, it was a, um, um, a little blow-up, like a beach ball-type globe. Christy bought it, I'm sure, for some homeschooling stuff, and this globe was driving me crazy. I'm talking years this thing was like notorious for showing up right where it's not supposed to be. I'm trying to get into the, lo- the, in, into the dryer for something, and this globe is in the way. Get out of here. You know, I'm trying to walk into a room. It's under my feet. I'm going to a bathroom. It's right there. Well, how did this thing get in here? Why is it in here? Who's even using it? We're well beyond looking at the globe as a homeschooling venture. What is this thing? And I was going to use it this morning, but I think I finally killed it. I can't remember the moment where it took place, but I'm sure I took it outside and stuck it with a knife or something and threw it in the trash can and finally ridded us of this 
this strange globe. But I wanted to use it this morning. So my, my, my best replacement is Luke's piggy bank. It's a little wee globe. And it's, it's tiny. It's full of money. Luke, Luke said, you can borrow it, but it's full of cold, hard cash. So be very careful with it. <laughs> so I don't want anybody up here pilfering this later. It's not going to the offering plate either, Luke. It's just for illustration. But it's full of cold, hard cash. A little globe, and it's got a little bow on it. I want you to visualize this with me. Imagine that this world that was created by Christ was created for Christ. I want you to imagine just visualizing this thing that, that we can, we're going to develop here in these next few minutes that, that God gave this to the Son. A father gives a gift to his son. It's got a nice little bow on it, so you can sort of visualize it as a gift. But in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, as the story develops, as the fall comes, the bow is ripped off and we realize this gift is spoiled. This gift is tainted through the fall. In the giving of it, it's spoiled and it's tarnished and it's damaged and it's unfitting for the son. But a loving God, a loving relational God, instead of discarding this thing and destroying this thing, he purposes to renovate it. He makes a plan to redeem it, to rescue it for his son, and he's going to do it with his son. If you ever doubt the love of God, you need to see that. Visualize this thing made for the son, but needing to be renovated and repaired and redeemed for his son, and he'll do that with his son. Here's how it goes down. It's sort of a creation week or a sort of a creation teamwork um, event in this work of redeeming this earth. And here's, uh, I do want you to turn to this passage in John chapter 17. I want to show you how this gift exchange goes down. John chapter 17. I'll give you a minute to turn there because I want you to see this. A gift exchange between father and son. John chapter 17 is one of the, is a, is a treasure for us as a church. I don't know how long we spend in this chapter. It's the high priestly prayer of Christ. The prayer, the prayer that he prayed the night that he was arrested. Um, it finished up the, uh, the evening that they, the final evening that they had together before he went to the cross. And it's, it's the longest prayer that we have recorded of Christ praying uh, for his people. He's praying for us in here. It's a very personal prayer we're prayed for specifically in here as well. But listen to some of the things that he says over the course of this prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verse 9. 
I'm praying for them, praying for these disciples that are right here in his presence. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look down at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I hope you see a theme in this prayer. His enjoying and remembering the fact that the Father has given some to his Son. He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you have given me. Watch, see the Father giving him a new gift. A new gift to redeem this gift. And he's giving him a gift of men. Motley crew men, too. Think about who's around that table. Fishermen, tax collectors, least likely to succeed. That's who he's gathered. In fact, in in John chapter 6, too, it says that you can't even come to the Son except that the Father draws you to the Son. John chapter 6, verse 44. John chapter 6, verse 65 says that you can't even come to the Son unless it is granted you by the Father. See the Father giving a gift to his Son here. It's like a new creation week. We're going to look for the other persons of the Trinity and see what they're up to. Let's look for the Spirit's role. In John chapter 3, the Spirit's role is on display. In John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. See, the Spirit has a role in this gift exchange. The Father gives men to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Father says, I'm going to purpose to give these men to my Son, and the Spirit is who brings them to the Son. Listen to this passage in Isaiah. Beautiful passage. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. The spirit is part of this gift exchange. And it is beautiful. Ezekiel chapter 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See the role of the spirit in bringing the bride to the Son. God has given gifts to the Son and its people. And the Spirit is the one bringing them to the Son. And let's see what the Son does. Ephesians chapter 5, a beautiful passage on marriage, tells us what the Son is up to, what, how the son, what the Son does with this gift from the Father. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify 
her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God the Father gives a motley crew, a mess, frankly, to the Son. The Spirit brings this mess to the Son, and the Son beautifies this mess. The Son sanctifies this bride, but the gift exchange isn't over. The last place I want you to turn this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to see what happens in this gift exchange. See what goes down in the last step. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. I'm going to start in verse 20 just because it's a paragraph. And it'll give you a minute to turn there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Watch what unfolds here. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those are in union with Christ. Then comes the end. Watch what happens at the end of this gift exchange. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all these enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Look down at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. The end of the age, when the work of the bride is finished, and the work on the bride is finished, then the Son will present creation back to the Father. What a beautiful, beautiful gift exchange. The Son will stand before the Father, equal with the Father, but in subjection to Him, like a prince with a beautified princess standing before the King. Man, we, something we ought to joy about our God is that a God, first of all, He is relational in that He is giving gifts to Himself, Father to Son, and son back to father. And here's how we're caught up in that. If you want to, want, want to know how God is relational with us. Is we're the gift. We're the gift. Man that is just. I hope that blesses you. I hope that surprises you. The church is the gift. A new humanity. A race of people that have been remade into the image of his father, the image of God. A race of Friday afternoon Adams and Eves. How relational is that? I prayed at the beginning of the morning, or at the beginning of the sermon, that there would be an outcome here this morning, that it would be identity developing. There are two things that I hope you will leave with this morning as a result of considering these things. First, 
you should realize that, that there's so much more to being his and being a Christian than going to church some and going to heaven when you die. That is so small. It's just small. It is a wafer-thin mint of the meal that we have in this faith journey. It is a thin sliver of the colossal reality of walking with God. You're part of an ancient story if you're united to Christ by faith. You're part of a plan playing out in heavenly spaces between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It should add some gravity to your Christianity. (laughs) Who wouldn't want this? Who could even leave this? When you connect the deep, big truths like that, how could you not continue in such an astonishing reality? How could you not have some awe and some wow in your faith? How could you not be mindful of this during the week? How could these sorts of things not invade Tuesday, our den, our marriage, our parenting? How primitive and inhuman could we be to go for days and weeks and months not celebrating this? It's less than human. When we're singing true things back to him, about him, when we're enjoying him together with God's people, it may be the most human moment that we have all week. Ah, <laughs> oh, How could we miss that? The second thing that I hope you'll walk away with is that an identity-building truth to see that you are a new humanity restored to the garden, albeit a fallen garden. Relationally, though, we're restored to a garden relationship with God, restored to the image of God. That's got to change how you live. If you notice, every time we looked at these passages, what was connected to them was a vice list. Put off that old junk. Put off that old humanity because that's not who you are. And put on this. Put on love, grace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Put these, those, that stuff off. Put these things on because that's who you are. These sorts of truths, these identity-building truths should invade the other spaces that are often left disconnected. It's that big. I have a little list of mites. How it might affect you. You could add to this list, I hope. You might look at your dog while petting him and think about the dominion God gave you over creation. And you can pet your dog and worship. Not him, but worship his creator. Something as simple as petting your old dog. You might hear of a pregnancy or a baby born and your heart sing at the thought of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and walking in this command that God gave and hearing the words God saying, man, that's good. That's good. You might be patient as you walk in faith like a gardener restored to the work of gardening. 
That's what it means to be in union with Christ. Where gardeners have a different disposition. They're not thinking like and moving like people that just buy and do everything on Amazon Prime. They're thinking long distance, long term. They're faithful in little daily things like pulling daily weeds. They're faithful in little daily disciplines like reading God's word and praying, meditating on his word. They don't expect change overnight, but they're fertilizing and watering with little daily unimpressive things like prayer. And you might see in each other more than just other people you go to church with. That's what it does for me. It's seeing in y'all fellow humans made into God's image. And seeing a bond, seeing a connection with my fellow humans as brothers and sisters in Christ recreated into the image of God. There's a kinship that goes beyond any other bond among God's people. I hope and pray that you think on these things, that you meditate on these things, that you talk about these things, that you enjoy these things. Let's pray. God, I pray for purchase. I pray these things that we've enjoyed together this morning, that you are a relational God, and what's behind the, what compels you to unite us to Christ. And I'm thankful that we together can enjoy your nature this morning. And that we can enjoy too that unite, union with Christ means recreation into your image. God, I'm thankful that we can enjoy that we are part of an ancient gift exchange. And that we are right up in the middle of it. God, I pray that we can see ourselves as a beautified bride that will add some deep roots, grow some deep roots in us, add some meaning to our identity as your people. I pray that we can see in each other a real kinship and a bond like no other. God, we're thankful. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute our elements here in a moment. But I'd like to share a passage with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is often read during the Lord's Supper, but what in front of it, I think there's a little passage in front of the Lord's Supper section that I think connects to some of what we talked about this morning, the decreation of mankind in the fall. And what's characteristic of a decreated humanity would be division, strife, every vice list that we mentioned there this morning. And look at what's going on in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, it says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, as a people, I hear that there are divisions among you. It's like he's going to say, you're a recreated people made into the image of God, but you're coming together as a bunch of individuals. You're coming together as a bunch of decreated, fallen people. I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you, when you come together, you think you're having the Lord's Supper, but you're not. You're not even having the Lord's Supper, is what he says. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, 
Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You're eating like a bunch of decreated, divided, individual people. You're eating like people who haven't been renewed into the image of God. And it's not even the supper. And he calls them to this meal in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As often as you, as a new humanity, as a recreated people renewed into his image, eat this meal, eat this supper, you proclaim the Lord's death as the work that accomplished the union. Man, we want to do that every single week. Why wouldn't we do that? Some people might wonder why we take the supper each week. Because why wouldn't we want to be reminded of what Christ's work accomplished? Being recreated together into the image of God. Being restored to Friday afternoon. Anybody else? This meal reminds us of how that happened. Wasn't anything we could do. It was only by the work of His Son. Let's distribute the elements and we'll enjoy him together.